Revolution. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards. Today I've caught Derek Walker, Chief instigator, janitor, secretary, and mailroom person for his agency Brown and Browner, Derek is a stellar copywriter in the big city of Columbus, South Carolina. A loud and proud critic and lover of the industry, Derek will never hold his tongue when it comes to voicing issues related to diversity, inclusion, and race in advertising. Derek says, No client has ever developed a product in 48 hours, but you want us to develop a message to sell that product and explain it in a way that'll encourage people to buy it and change behaviours. And you want us to develop that message in 48 hours? Nah. Welcome to the show, Derek. Oh, thank you. How are you today? Yeah, good. Good, good, good. Looking forward to this. Oh, I don't know why. <laughs> right, seven quick fires: Mac or PC? Mac. Nike or Apple? Apple. NBA or NFL? Neither. Listen or be curious? Be curious. But listen. <laughs> Creative or strategy? Creative. Nice. Right, two more: Young Frankenstein or Blazing Saddles? Blazing Saddles without a doubt. Dear God, how dare you, sir? I'm offended. I'm going I'm going home. <laughs> I'm coming. We're wrapping this up now. Right, last one. Best piece of advice. What is it? Swing for the fences or respect the craft? Respect the craft will make you swing for the fences. They're not different to me. Uh, you know, when you respect the craft, you don't put any um, governors on it. You swing anyway. You know, when you respect what we do, you'll be amazed. I don't think we look at advertising with, with any, I'll just leave it to that swing for the respect the crafting. You'll swing for the fences. I was about to go off. No, no, no. There's time for that. There's time for that. I'm going to ask you to go into that in, in, in a bit, but so on call to action, we like to celebrate the routes that guests have taken into the, in, in their career. And you've mentioned that you had a late start in advertising, but what was your first ever job? And then what was your first proper job in advertising and, and why do you describe it as a late start um first ever job i'm sorry i was i grew up in the south M- middle class low class lower class i don't know which one you want to call it but we always worked my first job i remember my mom my mom and dad were just just evil parents I got actually got a stool as a birthday present one year so I could wash dishes. But I wanted that stool. My brother and sister had to wash dishes. Um, so that was the first job I ever had was dishwasher. And I was three or four. I sucked at it. I was fired. I was demoted to just standing around and, dry, and drying, <laughs> off, drying off dishes. I could no longer wash. But understandable. The reason I say I was delayed... I came out of school 
the University of South Carolina and um, top one of the top in my class in advertising. And it took me 12 years to get an ad job, 13. I interviewed in 10 of the largest, 10 of the, not largest, but 10 of the best agencies in Atlanta, Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia. Next to Washington, D.C. at the time, it was the one of the blackest cities in America with one of the whitest ad industries in America. And um, my shortest interview was at this agency will, that will remain unnamed. They're still open and the CEO is still in work. And he came out, met me in the lobby and shook my hand and said, I'm sorry, Derek, our clients aren't ready for a black copywriter. I drove four and a half hours for that. So um, I went to work for Toys R Us, great company at the time, and um, trained in their management with the slant that I was going to their corporate office. And in a fit of testosterone stupidity, I quit that job and <laughs> went to work for Pizza Hut. And I worked for Pizza Hut for practically 10 years opening and closing and changing stores and helping markets grow and build. So the funny part is, is that I was at Toys R Us less than six, I mean, pizza less than six months before they went, wait, he needs to be in our marketing department. So there I was in the marketing department, helping local regions find, figure out how to advertise market and advertise their product. But I couldn't work for an ad agency. And the funniest thing is, that guy that whose client wasn't ready for a black copywriter ended up pitching Pizza Hut. <laughs> I was just about to ask, what about the agencies you work with? So, we, you know, I ended up having to see and work with agencies that wouldn't hire me as a creative, but had to work with me as a client. Did that show its ugly face in that circumstance or in that context? Was it just seemingly fine now from the agency's side of things? Oh, well, they didn't have a choice. I mean, think about it. They didn't have a choice. I'm, I'm, I'm one of the people deciding whether, whether or not we're going to spend money with you. You know, agencies are so hypocritical. Now, it is uncomfortable for, I guess it was uncomfortable for some of them to be in the same room with me and realize, I remember you. Because one or two of them would introduce themselves. And I said, we met, remember? I interviewed with you. See, I'm not a good person. I'm just not a nice person. Why should I let you off the chain? Off the hook? Why should I, you know, too often we expect people to be gracious about being abused or, or discarded. No. You know, I mean... I didn't make it any harder on them, but I reminded them that what they did, you know, you didn't think I was qualified to work for you. Well, guess what? Here we are. Here we are. Wow. Um, now you got to deal with me as a client. Is that so when you refer to a late start and you say it took, you know, say 12 years, is that because it took you 12 years to, to get agency side? Because it sounds like you were, you know, obviously client side. Yes. Relatively early on in, in your career, right? Mm -hmm. How did that feel being client side? Do you know what? I know, I do know people who have done both. Uh, I increasingly find myself talking to people who have only done agency side. Um, and it's interesting the different perspective you have on both sides. But whilst it wasn't necessarily something that was your choice from the off, 
presumably there were huge benefits from that experience of being client side and you know actually customer facing type businesses it it cuts through the crap you know i i hear agencies that's why i i detest hearing agencies talk about we're going to help with roi or we're going to increase sales you're full of it you can't increase my sales well you can increase my sales you can't increase profit let me change that they do not control agencies do not control enough of a, a client's business pure business to increase profits my inventory affects profit my manpower hours affect profit product availability you know there are a thousand things that go into whether or not a, a client is profitable so when an agency is sitting in a room talking about we're going to help you be profitable the client knows you're lying but they're going to let you do that dance and i'm not you know when people ask me well how are you going to improve my profits i'm not you gonna let me handle customer service you gonna let help product quality you know um inventory control store environment, website design. And I'm talking about the retail part of the website. Where it's easy to find products. None of that's in our control. So tell me again how you make make clients more profitable. Yeah, well said. So how did you go from how did you go from Pizza Hut? To, was it directly from Pizza Hut to agency side? And, and was that to an agency you were working with? I no, I um Norm Gray had told me early on in when I first got us out of the university that I needed to go to the portfolio center and I couldn't afford it. So, you know how life has, is you go, I'm just going to stay here for a little while. And 10 years went by and we were fixing a store at Collier Road and Howell Mill and Sean Wood was graduating from the portfolio center. He came in, he was one of the employees in the store that we loved. And he said, um, I've got to quit. I've got this job down in sh in Miami at this little tiny shop called Crispin and Porter. And they're relocating me and all of this. And we went over and I was, for some strange reason, I said, can I see your samples from the portfolio center? And he said, sure. And he gave me some black and whites and I went home and I was looking at them and my wife asked me, what are you looking at? And I told her the same thing. And she looked at me and she said, so when are you going to the portfolio center? And I went for 18 months. I graduated, but I did it on, I was the, one of the few accelerated students at the portfolio center ever. Pizza Hut paid for it, for it because I was working in marketing. So part of that covers, and then there were some, some scholarships and I come home and this is, <laughs> this is back when we had those big blocky answering machines with those big buttons you punch. And there, was, and there was a message on my phone, my graduating quarter from this guy named Paul Council at Kramer Crassel in Milwaukee, wanting to interview me. And I thought it was my mentor, Ken Bowes, playing a joke on me. So I pull out the Red Book. Yeah, the young ones won't know what the Red Book of Advertising is. And I'm looking at all the creative department, and I can't find this Paul Council guy. And my, uh, my wife at the time, she looks at me, she goes, you know, you creators are so stupid. And I'm like, what? She goes, did you look at the top of the listing? And, you know, at the top of the listing in the Red Book, it gave the corporate officers. And 
at the top of the list of corporate officers was Paul Council, president and CEO. And my wife's like, she was like, I think you need to take that call. <laughs> and how did the call go? Oh, the call went, went great. Um, they flew me up. I, you know, I'm, I'm a Southerner, so any chance to see snow is always great, but I'm not built for snow. So <laughs> not built for cold at all. So I stayed, that's how I got into advertising. I went, you know, they, they offered me a job and Paul turned out to be a great, great CEO to have. He had this habit or practice of meeting with each new employee in the office and asking them what their goal was for the next five years. And then devising a plan and finding you a mentor or advisor to help you achieve your goal. So mine's, of course, being all here. I am older than most portfolio center grads. Um, we had a, we had one child and we had another child on the way. So I was married and grounded. And I, I looked at him and I said, in five years, I want to own my own agency. And he looked at me and he goes, OK, I, I own my own agency. So you're going to shadow me. And that's what I did for almost almost two years. Wow. To your to your earlier question. I think I was equipped for that because I worked client side. I don't get lost in the numbers. I I live and breathe. I mean, at Pizza Hut, everything and people don't people dismiss fast food and retail, but you got to look at how they operate. They are so number driven, the mid 90s and Pizza Hut would adjust store hours for over 2000 units. They would adjust store hours for each individual unit on the hourly basis. So you would get a notice that you had too many employees working. That's how number obsessive they were. So when I sit across from people talking to me and asking me about billing by the hour or for a client, I'm like, you guys don't, please. You don't understand. When people talk about ROI, I'm like, you don't even understand the formula to, to, to get ROI. And I'm not being arrogant about it. It's it's we learn a couple of business terms and we ride them to death and we think they make us sound smarter when the idea is learn. Learn what makes your client's business tick and talk to that. And what it makes it tick to customers. Let me clarify that. Because pizza, it's all about, and bless their hearts, their business. They were all about making and pumping out pizzas efficiently and at cost effective, effectively as possible. That's not why people come into Pizza Hut. People come into Pizza Hut for a pizza. You know, they care less. And if it's a really good pizza, they don't care how long. They do care that it may take an hour. But if it's a really good pizza and, you know, there are some folks in New York who are in Chicago and Detroit who are cringing at the use of good pizza and pizza Hut in the same sentence. But bite me. Um. <laughs> <laughs> what was it? What was it like, Derek, going from spending so much time uh, client side Pizza Hut, the pace of that in terms of the market, in terms of that daily exposure to customers and numbers that you're talking to, to going agency side where presumably you were exposed to a, a range, perhaps 
three or four, maybe a dozen, even different types of clients in different industries. Was that a tough adjustment to make? No, it 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 wasn't tough. It was just odd. The pace stays about the same. You know, it's so funny. That's why. That's that. But it's it's different. You're looking from the fast food area. I'm looking at people pretending to work at the agency, and I don't mean this in a bad way. But we've created a culture of where we have to pretend, look like we're busy, and. Um, I don't think we appreciate the luxury of not being ha- of not having to work that way. So it's odd. It's easy to stay busy for me, you know. Um, but you also learn to work in spurts, and I think you work. I, I'm so I was so grateful to come into the industry that late. I, I mean, I've never sat around and gone. I need to catch up with anybody. I just haven't. I came in and it tempered my enthusiasm. It tempered um, my expectations. I What really amazed me was how so many people were in positions of management who had not been trained. I just, I spent the first five, six years of, of my career in advertising walking around going, my God, these people are walking lawsuits. In corporate America, some of these people would have would have been close to going to jail. And you just you're just amazed that we don't train people to manage man. You see managers and subordinates in relationships, direct manager and subordinates in relationships, which is a clear conflict of interest and it can be an abuse of power. You see the manipulation of numbers and you're like, you do know that's embezzlement. And, and and I'm sitting there watching folks cook the numbers because they've and I'm going, I'm not doing that. You can fire me. I'm not. I can't. Because in my world before advertising, that would have gotten me locked up. There's an arrogance to add people to. And I mean, I'm not even talking about creators. It's the folks running agencies or. There are are account services or strategists who sit across from you and think they're smarter than they are about business. And um, I'm looking at them going, you have no clue. I think um, I've noticed, I might have raised this a few times recently, in fact, on the pod, so apologies to listeners who think this is an echo, but I've spoken to numerous people, some incredible people too, and I would probably include, I'm sure, Drayton Bird and Steve Harrison immediately spring to mind, of people who have referred to the fact that they came, I suppose, quote unquote, late, in a a sense, to the business, but not so much late, but more so experienced in life outside of the advertising industry and brought all of that with them inside the agency they then subsequently joined and, and were so much better for it for having those different references and just understanding of just life and business. And it sounds, I mean, this sounds like a complete parallel with you, Derek, and, and, and the benefits that you, I, I suppose, unfortunately, for many reasons, because you wanted to go agency side earlier, but I think it's a blessing that you actually did turn into a positive of sorts. And it sounds like you benefited hugely for that. Oh, yeah, I, I wouldn't have, you know, this is, we live with no regrets. I, I, you know, my plan is my plan. 
my my it wasn't the plan I had. You know, my mom used to say, you want to make God laugh? Tell him your plans. <laughs> but you did plan. You plan you planned to open your own agency and then you then did it. So so there's a plan there. How did that come? How did that take shape? I got laid off. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't planned. <laughs> uh, actually, it was. I delayed that layoff for two years. Um, I was working at IMC Square in Dallas. I, I, for some strange reason, I thought I needed digital experience, so I went to work for IMC Square. Or oh, I've said, said that name two times more than I should. This is how the two worlds collide. We're in a meeting. They're announcing layoffs. They're going to lay off 70 people because they are not profitable enough. Now, hold on to that quote, not profitable enough. So I turn and I look at the young man sitting next to me and I say, you might want to move. And I raise my hand during the Q&A and I say, let me be straight before I ask this question. We have a no retaliation product. We have an open door policy where as long as I'm respectful and honest and I don't attack anybody or defame anyone, I can ask a question and not be punished for this question. And they said, yes. And then for like 20 minutes, I proceeded to pepper them with questions about why don't you reduce costs before you lay off people? You said you were laying off people because you're not profitable enough. That means you are making profit, but it's not as much profit as you want. So you're going to lay off 70 people. That doesn't make sense to me. Did you ask employees if they wanted to take a pay cut or reduce hours? Did you cut back on some of the perks in the office so that we could do this? What We got two offices. Why don't we condense down to one? And, you know, to reduce our costs, why don't we do all of these things? And biggest of all, why don't we freeze bonuses for upper management? And then we can afford these 70 people you're going to lay off because, and I just said, it. I said, because you allowed the accounting team and the finance team to go out drinking with everybody at the agency. So we all know how many, but how much you guys make in bonuses. And the room, I looked around and there was, I was sitting next to people when I started this rant. When it was over, there was nobody sitting next to me. The, the, the gentleman in HR turned and he looked at me and he smiled. So on the way out, my friend is walking with me. He goes, what have you just done to yourself? I said, wait for it. And the HR director comes up to me. He goes, I now have to inform them that they can't fire, they can't lay you off because it'll look like retaliation. So... <laughs> So we did that for two, we did that for like two years and that allowed me that's, but that's understanding the corporate side of doing things, that business side, it, that's under, reading the employee manual and the, the, so it gave me time to start up and save up money and, and build up some contacts. I didn't have enough contacts and I, so we went to the last com the last company wide meeting we went to. They started with "There will be no questions." <laughs> of course, they did. <laughs> and we, you know, we look at each other and we go, "Oh, we're so screwed." I but we use different. <laughs> it's they're coming for us now, and but I had I we we delayed our being laid off for almost two years just by knowing what questions to ask. And, you know, and it was just it was just funny because it's a chess game. But once again, your policy manual says we have an open door policy. As long as you don't insult somebody, you can ask a good question. 
well, guess what? You shouldn't have had that policy. So that led to me getting laid off. And in 2008, 2009, I get laid off and I get to open a business during a recession. And how did it go? Oh, it was hard. You're 15, 15 years old, 15 years young. Now. Yes. Congratulations. But we, we're not big. I'm, well, I'm intentionally small. I think ad agencies have a natural size. I really do. I think once you get above, depending on the business, once you get above 300 souls, you're tad too big to maintain the, the culture. It's hard to maintain the culture then, and you need the culture. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've worked in a place where they, they struggled to maintain it past 50 even, but I guess it depends on what it was. Well, look at Shiat Day with, and I'm not talking about TBW, a Shiat. I'm talking about the Shiat before that. Look at um, Fallon, even when they were Fallon McGilligan. Look at Wyden and Kennedy. Look at um, Goodby. Look at the Richards Group. Look at the Martin Agency. They, they maxed at around... 200, 250, they were doing good because the sheer strength of the personality of the leader. They believed in what they believe. Ackerman McQueen, which I, um, you know, they're the, they're the agency for the NRA or were until they fell out with them. They, they so believed they had such a culture that they could keep going. Now, I didn't like the culture of Mac Ackerman McQueen, but I understood it. Um, Wyden is the same way. Um, Kramer Crassel is. They and, and when I say the same way, I, they're, they're led by strong leaders. Strong leaders guard the the culture. That's why so many agencies suck. It and the worst part about it is they suck making money. Ad agencies print money, but they can't manage profits or reward. Yeah, they, they, they build, I thought, I don't know if this is right, actually, I've never said it out loud uh, till now, but they, 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 they typically build brands, which are the opposite of commodities, and yet they act and trade as a commodity too often. Yes, exactly. What, what else do you think agencies fear? Listen, you did, a, you did a, a brilliant, brilliant and rightly very popular talk for Mark's uh, Do Together recently, where you spoke about agencies fearing so many things. Can you, can you summarise what agencies fear? Um, and has that always been there? Did you see that when you started post Pizza Hut even? Or is this, is this a, modern, a modern problem? It's a modern thing. It's a, it's a late 1990s, early 2000, when, when the market crashed in 2008, we saw, a, we saw markets, total markets like Dallas and San Francisco and Minneapolis and Kansas City just eviscerated. So people, people gave up on being, being brave. That was a hard lesson to see so many people lose their jobs and markets. I mean, if you go back and look at the numbers before and after 2008, 2009, 2010, there's a, a huge decrease. Agencies just disappeared. I mean, you could list out great agencies that aren't around anymore. Clients became emboldened. They um, they realized they could they could be a, and I I don't want to say this the wrong way, but they could almost be abusive in how they treat the ad agencies, and we would take it. Our fear is our fear of losing business. 
but it's sort of like a, a relationship. If you fear losing a spouse or a significant other, you pretty much are going to manifest all the things that are going to cost cost you to cause you to lose that person. Yeah, that's a really good parallel. I I love what we used to be, and it's amazing to hear on Twitter and LinkedIn when we talk about this. How many of us don't believe we can be that again? It's maybe some Stockholm syndrome. We've been we as we've been hostages for so long that we now identify with our captors. I think there's a huge confidence crisis as well, isn't there? As a result of this, and maybe that's just a byproduct of fear. It is. It's it's all fear. Yeah. Um, if we can't tell clients no, and we fear telling clients no because they may leave us, they may reduce the. See, we don't have agency of record relationships anymore. We don't even believe that's possible. <laughs> Dear God. Well, it's not possible with Procter and Gamble. Maybe I, I think Procter still has agency of records, but I'm saying, and Nike even with widen it still passes a, 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 a huge chunk of its business to everybody else. That's what everyone's afraid of. But in doing that, agencies are not hungry enough anymore. If you go out and you find you a, a up and coming company, you can build you a Nike or Apple, you know, it's, we've proven that we can do that, but we're afraid. What if it doesn't work? Well, if it doesn't work, you had fun along the, along the way. You make some money. Um, when I first got into advertising, I knew three agencies that had operating costs in the bank. I mean, three to five years of worth of operating costs. I'm not going to name them because that's, you know, that's what they would tell their employees and I don't want to share it. But think about that. What happens when you have three years of operating costs in the bank? How do you behave with a client then? See, if you have, <laughs> if I have three years of operating costs in the bank, don't say shit to me. Excuse my language. <laughs> I'm saying no a lot. <laughs> yeah. You can't threaten me. And I actually sat in a meeting when I interned at, I'll, give this name because the agency is no longer run by him. He's passed Marvin Chernoff, Chernoff Newman. It's Chernoff Newman now, but it used to be Chernoff Silver here in Columbia. I interned there and he was talking to some client at the power company, SCNG, huge power company that had the state of South Carolina and parts of North Carolina and Georgia. And the client said something to him and he looked at him and he says, I've got five years of operating costs in the bank. Not one of my employees will lose a job if you go away. And he said it not as a threat, but just with a confidence. And, you know, he said it in front of employees and an intern to a client. And, you know, you're sitting there going, I'm, I'm 21, 20, 21 years old. I don't know what that means to have five years of operating costs in the bank until I get to Pizza Hut and Toys R Us. And I'm like, shoot. You know, he, and it, when you do that, you, you, we take the money we make and, and fold it into profits. But we don't, imagine what, how few layoffs would we have had during COVID if agencies had had 
enough money in the bank to run for three years with their existing staff. Think about that job security that tells an employee, you know, it's dear God, it's just managing. And people look at me and think, you see my post and you may think I'm idealistic. No, I'm realistic. We have not done this stuff. And we agencies are one of the few businesses that can do this easily because what operating costs do we really have? Except an offer. You know, we don't have a manufacturing plant. You know, we don't have an R&D firm. We don't have trucks and, and, and vehicles. We don't have any of that. So all the money we make, we can make a good profit and pay ourselves. But what, sh what we should be doing is making sure our people are protected and safe. Our business is strong. Then no client can bully you. We make fun, but there's a reason Apple keeps that much money in cash. They almost $240 billion in cash for a reason. You know, what if, think about it, if you could have three, and, and people don't understand, that means three years of operating cost means three years of salary, three years of insurance, three years of everything. Hey, you're, in, you're not invincible, but you can, you can ride a storm out. Yeah, you can eat this winter. Yeah. Uh, what piece of advice? I need to move on to listener questions, but I, but I want to put a piece of advice. I'm asking for a piece of advice to agency folk out there listening now. Um, advice on how to overcome that fear. Is it one of your swing for the fences tips in this instance, or, or, or is it is it different? Is it bigger than that? It's no. It's a little tip. It's just try. When that fear says, "Don't do this," well, I hear you. We show the client, uh, you know, instead of showing the client three ideas that you know the client will love, show them two, two ideas that you know the client will love and show them that one that will make them uncomfortable. You know, I mean, the, the fear, part of the fear is you don't know the client. Take the client to lunch. Just pop in and visit and say, and you know, I show up at a client's place of business just to watch them work. Is, is that a waste of my time? No, I'm curious. But what, what message does that send to a client that the owner of, of their agency, one of their agencies, it just wants to watch them work? You know, uh, we've become so, we, we, we don't, we are, this is okay. I know what it is. Be creative about how you do things, not just about what you produce. Um, I, I, I can tell by the work that we see on TV, hear on radio, see on the internet and everything. Some of these young creatives have never been to the client's place of business. Dear God, what an abomination. So just, it's just try. You know, do something different. That's harder. That's harder than it sounds. Yeah, cool. Right, here we go then. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names is notoriously fraught with danger. Uh, but we've got two for you today, Derek, uh, starting with the brilliant Elroy the Cat, creative director and copywriter David Moore. He says, OK, Derek, 
What is an ad campaign that you worked on that you are proud of? Which one of my children do I love more? That's what he's asking. <laughs> That's what he's asking. <laughs> Dear God. I'm going to have to go with... This doesn't mean, by the way, that you're not proud of others, uh, for any of your clients listening. No, no. I'm going to go with Appleton Paper, one of the very first jobs I did in advertising. And that's a paid job. And the Susan G. Komen Foundation, which was a cancer job. Appleton Paper, they gave it to the junior team, me and this junior cop art director named Dan Cole. Dan's a great art director, by the way, out of Milwaukee. And we had a little tiny budget, but you know, we're, we're two juniors, so we don't know budget. We don't need no stinking budget. We presented a couple of ideas and they were, we had the, the basic folder. It was a direct mail piece. We, you know, we had the basic folder shell sheets and all of that stuff that Apple, Apple paper reps would always use. And then we came up with a couple of crazy ideas you know, for, for security paper. And, um, we presented all the ideas and the client loved the two crazy ideas so much that they bought both of them. They spent more on those two projects for, from these two juniors than they had ever spent in a year and gleefully did it and got great results from it. And, you know, you're, I didn't appreciate how rare that is until 10, 20 years later. And you're going, holy crap, can I do that again? You know, um, my mom passed from breast cancer and I was a holy terror against cancer for decades after that. So, um, I hate cancer and, um, I was sitting there thinking about how much I missed her. And I decided to do a campaign for Susan G. Komen, but we did it from a man's perspective. You know, um, we don't engage husbands, fathers, and sons in the conversation over breast cancer. So we did a campaign that talked to husbands, fathers, and sons about how to encourage the women in their lives to get breast exams. And um, we presented, Susan G. Komen had um, a sponsorship by Ford and the NFL Players Association. And we presented the spots rough, just the storyboards to, to a group of NFL players. And we made them cry. And they gave us that year, they gave us um, one spot on every NFL game during the season. And um, it just, it was a, a way to do some good, you know? Um, they started getting men calling in asking, what do I need to ask my wife? Is there is there something, the questions I need to, how do I encourage her to get a, when should she get a mammogram? You know, all of these questions. They started getting inquiries from men. So when I hear people tell me TV doesn't work, I don't want to tell them to F you. There's your measure. There's your measure right there. They started hearing from men. Those two, mainly because I didn't go into them expecting to do great work. I just went in there and, and thought, what if we just try, you know?
And um, that has, those two stick with me, but I mean, I, I've done a lot of stuff. There's some, but those two, that's for David. I'm gonna deal with him later. Yeah, <laughs> I believe you. Uh, the second question is actually from Beth from from here from Gasp, and I know I know she wanted to pick your brain on on this because it came up in the research. But she said, if you had the power to mandate that everyone in the ad industry had to watch one movie, what would that movie be and why? See, everybody's gonna think it's Blazing Saddles. I think God, that one movie. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to go with Blazing Saddles. Mainly because it shows what you can do when you really... Mel Brooks wasn't supposed to make that movie. The studio didn't want to see that movie. He had enough faith in the vision to, to circumvent the movie theater. The, I mean, the production company. And get it out. And it did well. I think those kinds of movies are, there's a lesson in the learn, in the, in the making. It attacks or offends everybody. So, it, you know, we always worry about offending someone and he actually dialed into what if you just offended everybody? <laughs> you know, so that, um, there's a third question from John Lyons now. There is, there was, yeah. Yeah, I'll answer that. Which DE and I professionals are closest to Uncle Ruckus? Too many. <laughs> I mean, and I don't, I, you know, here's the thing. I love some of these people, but I haven't heard from them since they've gotten jobs. I think the agencies and the holding companies understood giving these people DE and I positions was a way to silence critics. Now, they're gonna, some folks are going to hear this and, and want to prove me wrong, then prove me wrong. Come back on social media and say something. But it seems like folks are too worried about keeping a job now. And let me tell you, those DNI, some DE&I positions pay well. So, yeah, no. Um, too many other, you find out in every cause, there's somebody willing to pimp the, the, the people out. I mean, Me Too had it. Um, Black Lives Matter had it. Civil Rights Movement had it. The women's suffrage had it. All along, gay, lesbian, they all struggles. There's somebody willing to sell out the people they're supposed to be helping. That's human nature. I'm not going to name their names, but I will put them on blast that we know who they are. And um, the sad part about it is then change doesn't happen. You know, um, I will not be getting invites to the to the to the um, cans at the beach due to this. I want you to know or Martha's Vineyard. Well, hell, I don't get invites to that anyway. Um, but it's troubling. And. Um, some of our some of our folks are put in a position and and the agencies and the holding companies know exactly what they're doing they know exactly that once you hire this person they can't criticize you and that's the wrong reason to hire people or create a position as a matter of fact it should be just the opposite the dei person should have the power 
to challenge and push and encourage and drag an organization screaming and kicking into the right century. I had the pleasure of, of interviewing Doug Melville, who at the time was TBWA's first, I believe, first global head of diversity, or I forget the exact articulation of the job title. And he said something really profound, and it's always stuck with me. And I think there might be parallels here. He said, the trouble is, as soon as you as soon as you appoint someone to that position where you, you assemble a department to tackle that problem, everyone else in that company just sees it as that group or that person's problem to solve. And you immediately introduce so many barriers because people will think, oh, Doug's here now, he'll solve it, as opposed to actually doing what Doug was trying to say is actually everybody needs to solve this. This isn't just a department's job. We interrupt this podcast to announce that we will never interrupt this podcast with ads. Ads that awkwardly nudge you to contact the pod's host, Giles Edwards, on 01189 952 007. Only last week, some pod listening companies did just that, calling for guidance on research and lead generation. But we're not asking you to do that. Anyway, back to the show. Marketing is incredibly confused with sales. I think you're the one who's more confused, Gary V. Sunshine. I think every I think every CEO should be responsible for diversity, inclusion, and equity. Every CEO. It should be directly impacting their wallet on their bonus and everything else. When you put it that high, something changes. I have worked for some great bosses. I've worked for some horrible bosses. This amazes me to see CEOs go into the ad press or go on social media and and fake that they have no idea why they're struggling with this. When with a whisper, a holding company said they were going to build an AI, so they weren't going to do any awards for a year, and they did it. I've seen CEOs move whole agencies across town just because they get they got a wild hair up their butts. But but now you gonna tell me that a CEO cannot tell his organization we will be more diverse and a, an executive creative director go, you know what, fuck you. I'm not gonna do this. And keep a job. Where in the world does that happen? You know, the numbers haven't improved because the CEOs have to own this. Doug is right. It's almost a hindrance to have the position when it's a CEO's job. Whose job is it to create the vision for the agency or have a vision for the agency? The CEO's. Uh, In the vision, shouldn't you have a vision of what the agency looks like? Eh? But why do you hand it off to the DEI person? Because you got more important things to do. And you have more important things to do because your clients aren't engaged in this. And yeah, Pritchard, I'm looking at you. Mark Pritchard pisses me off. Because with a word, he, he could change the, the entire advertising industry. If he told his agencies today that every agency should have 8% black employees, 
not 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 people of color. I'm not going to use that term because they know higher Indians, and I'm saying East Indians. They hire um, everybody else but black people. But if Mark Pritchard told his agencies eight percent African American today, how many agencies wouldn't do it? How many CEOs wouldn't line up? See we have no incentive to do it because clients profess that they're concerned about DE&I, but then they do absolutely nothing. Now he came on and talked to Walter Gear, and he said he was going to do this. He was doing this behind the back. Look at the numbers for their agencies. He wasn't serious about it and his agencies aren't serious about it. And the agency holding companies aren't serious about it. And if they are, then prove me wrong. You know where to find me. Um, that's it's almost a dance. Coca-Cola has done DE&I better than most companies. They lost their way for a bit, but they're going back to it. It makes no sense for Coca-Cola not then to turn its gaze towards its agencies and say, hey, you don't look the way our customers do. Let us help you show you how. It's um, if it doesn't come from the clients, who's going to influence them? I, Doug, I respect Doug. Doug, and it's so funny now. Notice that Doug is no longer in the in the industry. How many of our 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 D and I folks that came out through Black Lives Matter are now working on the client side? That's because one, the client pays better, and two, the client actually embraces it for real. Agencies and holding companies are doing a dance. They got tired. But anyway, that's that's. Yeah. So, I, yeah, none. There are a whole bunch of Uncle Ruckuses. And if you don't know who Uncle Ruckus is, well, I'm talking to your listeners. Um, go to YouTube and watch Boondocks. But be prepared. We'll stick a link. We'll stick a link in the episode. Yeah. Dear God, Boondocks is... I, I think I take it back. Not Blazing Saddles. They should watch all seasons of Boondocks. Oh, my goodness. There we go. <laughs> Dear. Link yeah, there we go. Yeah, I, as you can tell, I have a. I'm I'm not afraid of those things. I believe in DE and I. I just don't believe in it the way we've done it. Um, I think the DEI position should be able to hire and fire, set goals for each department, and if those, it should be it should be a C-suite position. Yeah, it has to have be a position of power. If it's, if if you're not backing it with power, what's the point? But they all answer to. Yeah, the majority of them answered to the HR department, the HR lead, C-H-R-O. We got way too many titles. But um, imagine if the, the DE&I person could tell a, a, a creative department, you know, your numbers were this. You did not meet your numbers. Now we're going to give you an action plan. That's the kind of power they need. Because let's be totally honest, creators are as arrogant as, almost as arrogant as strategists. Dear God, nobody's as arrogant as strategists. Never mind. But, um, (laughs) (laughs) oh, I'll be getting some mail now. Um, (laughs) yeah, just check the email link we've put to Derek at the base. Yeah, 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 come on. But, um, (laughs) no, that was all, um, that was all very well said. 
it's so funny to see this because I mean, we we're no better off than we were five years ago. You know, and the sad part is, is if you guys could read my emails, you would really cry. Because some of these some of these candidates, some of these people are being hired and then they're not they were hired and absolutely had nothing to do. They just hired them. They didn't integrate people into their teams. Or the heaven forbid, this one came out way too many times. Black women, black women and black men were being labeled angry or difficult. I know for a fact the Pepsi debacle with the Jenner child, the protest video commercial. On Pepsi side, there were black people in the room. They didn't feel like they could speak. And look at what happened to Pepsi. This is going to keep occurring because agencies, holding companies, and clients have black people in the room who cannot speak and are scared to death to hire folks who can. I mean, just they are. And then when they hire them, I've seen I've seen one person go to one agency where I swear, and it's an agency I love dearly. And the account service team sabotaged this strategist, just literally sabotaged. And when I brought it to the leadership's attention, they they agreed. Yes, yes, our account service team did sabotage him, but we're still going to let him go. If my account service team's fucking with my strategist and not giving them what they need, guess who I'm letting go? I'm letting the account service team go. It was two people, so it wasn't the whole team. But imagine you're saying, I'm going to keep the abuser, (laughs) but I'm going to get rid of the abused. It's easier to do that. Tell me how we changed. I mean, literally, just tell me. I get emails like this. I get calls like this. And it's not my job. I don't work for a damn holding company. But I got to call you and tell you what's going on in your own house. Um, you and I were talking earlier about Paul Council. He would bounce into my office, and I was way down there on this—I was, was one floor down below him in this little. My office was by the closet, so you know that I was way, way, way by the arts closet. And he bounced in. He sat down. I'm like, "What can I do for you?" He looks at me. He says, "Nothing. I'm walking the halls." I was like, what's walking the halls? He goes, I walk the halls to see what's going on, to hear, to talk to people, just to get a a pulse for what what we're going through. Why am I having to reach out to a CEO in New York or, or Chicago or L.A. or San Francisco or Portland and tell them what's going on in their agency, in their city? They're not walking the halls. That's a basic thing. Well, now I'm sorry, I take that back because now we're on work from home. And But how many CEOs have reached out and called their people in the last eight months? Just under, I'm just checking in on you. Working from home is, 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 is a curse and a benefit and a blessing. I, I think, we, I think um, how we work needs to be reexamined. We're not, we're not assembly line employees. We don't need to be in the office every day for eight hours. 
I do want my teams, I do, on a weekly basis to come together and hang out. Where you do that is of your choice. Now we've let some people, you know, some people have moved out of city or out of state. Then you know what? Once a month, I need you to come into the city. Fly in. I'm paying you enough. If you've moved somewhere cheaper, you can fly in. And if not, let's talk about it and let's restructure the, your 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 compensation so I can have you in for for once a month. Come in for once a month. Spend a couple of days with the team and go back to where you are. We have failed to get creative about managing our people. And it's hurt us. That's, you know, and I'm all doom and gloom. No, I've seen the, I've seen better. Why would I accept worse? That's that, you know, that's my point to half the people that think, oh, you want to go back to old times. I don't want to go to back. I want to go back to what we can, can be before clients made us into this mockery. And I, I'm, you know, I probably, Brown and Brown, I will never be huge because I will not give over my books to procurement. Will not. You're not gonna tell me how much I can make and you're not gonna tell me how much I'm gonna pay my people. Because I, you know, for as much as these clients say that, how many of them let us tell them how much we're gonna pay for their product and service? Exactly that. Yeah, exactly that. Well said. So, but but I'm a bad business person. Yeah, no. Actually, I'm a great business person stuck in an industry that doesn't know what a great business person is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the thing. That's it. That's more like it. I'm going to I'm going to fire our four pertinent poses at you, Derek. Uh, that starts with, with, with what advice would you give to your younger self? Don't quit Toys R Us. Why is that? Pizza Hut sounds like it was a it was a great step. When I worked for Toys R Us, they had um, one hundred percent coverage on the insurance. There was <laughs> they covered all that. I mean, their benefit package was called the Golden Handcuffs. There were some aspects of of how they ran their business. I wish I had hung around to understand better. Right, I see. Okay, number number two. We may have touched on this already, but to be honest, there could be a few. If you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? I would banish the all everybody's creative talk. I'm not saying you're not creative, but you're not creative the way a copyright and art director are. I need my accountant to be creative in their how they approach accounting. I need my account service people to be creative in how they service the client. I need my strategists to be creative in the strategies they develop. Media planners and buyers, I want I want creative media planning and buying. You see what I mean? Everybody, everybody wants to be creative the way copywriters and art directors are. And I don't think, I think that's a bad idea. I think I need you to be creative in your job. I need media planners and buyers to delve into social media and interactive and and tell me if this metaverse is really worth what it what the you know I need a trusted voice on the metaverse and I don't have it because media people aren't in don't don't feel like they need to delve deeply in it the way they should. I need strategists to tell me that about what's the strategy for getting into the metaverse and using it better than anybody else. They're too busy trying to write copy and art direct. Do your damn job. I need you to do your damn job right. I'm sorry. That, that, I hope that answers that. 
<laughs> yeah, it does. It does. No, it does. It answers it well. Uh, number three, are there any books that you can recommend to our listeners? I like George Lewis's book um, for, oh, goodness. I went blank on it. Oh, uh, damn good advice. Yeah, damn good advice. I'm going re- to recommend a book that nobody will ever recommend, and I do this on several occasions. First of all, pick up some old comic books, Marvel and DC, from the 70s and the 80s. For, for creatives and art directors, read that to understand how to tell a story that engages and holds people's attention. For strategists and account service people and even creatives, pick up the New Testament. I'm not trying to make you a Christian or a follower of Christ. I'm saying read it to understand how Jesus told stories and reach people. This is a faith that was built off of one man and 12 followers. The insights and, and observations of human of humanity in there are just amazing. Then Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. An oldie but a good. I don't like him as much as I used to, but Jerry Delafamino's from those wonderful people who brought you Pearl Harbor. And um, Stephen King, anything Stephen King. No movies. You cannot watch a Stephen King movie. They're crap. But the book, <laughs> the books are amazing. Okay, those are those are hold you. If, I mean, there are no pictures in Stephen King's books, but you come away with an image. I mean, you, you, dear God, he just he paints with words, which makes his movie so bad. But anyway, okay, next one. Yeah, do you know what? There's a few there that haven't come up. I mean, George Lois has, but rightly so. I'm happy to that to just continue to come up. It's a it's it's a it's a gem. Um, I don't even think how to win friends and influence people has ever come up. You know, and this is this is close to our hundredth episode, so that's great. Old comic books, hundred percent. The New Testament. I love the rationale behind that. So that's that's great. This is all good stuff. Let me give you an example so people understand why. Uh, the the parable of the prodigal. The loss, the, the, the parable of the prodigal son doesn't start with the prodigal son. Jesus is asked the question about what heaven's like. And he real quick, he goes, it's like a man who has a herd of sheep and a hundred sheep and he loses one and he goes to look for it and he can't find it. And he tells that story and he looks at the audience and goes, y'all didn't get that because some of y'all aren't shepherds. And then he goes, it's like a woman who has a, a, a poor woman who has a an valuable coin and she loses that coin. She tears the house up and she tries to find it. And he looks at the audience again and goes, ah, oh, some of y'all are rich. So you've never lost a coin. Something about that parable didn't connect with the entire audience. And he goes, okay. It's like a man who has two sons and the one son comes to him and says, you know what, dad, the youngest comes to him and goes, I wish you were dead so I could have my inheritance. Now, he doesn't say that in the parable, but that's the understanding in the community and the culture of the time. To ask for his inheritance was to say, I want you dead. Give me my money. And immediately think about the connection that would make in that in that culture. How people would feel about that child. So what he did was he read the room. Jesus read the room. The first parable wasn't personal enough. The second one, while being more personable, 
because it was about money, which everybody had, it still didn't make a connection. The third one touched on how they understood their culture. Now, as advertising professionals, how often do we put work out and realize it didn't connect? And we don't go, what do I, how do I ramp it up? How do I make another connection? How do I get more personal? And when you find the work that really works that well is the work that goes as deep as the third parable does. I mean, it just, you know, it, it gets detailed. You can't do that in six seconds. Sometimes you need 30. Sometimes you need a print. Sometimes you just need a, a, a video or a radio spot. We don't look at our message with all this information and technology and stuff. We don't look at our message and go, that didn't work. Why didn't it work? Let's on the fly. And we we're the, the best equipped to do it now on the fly. How do we change that? And that's why I like the, the thing about reading the new Testament is watch how Jesus gets a message out. And it's not a complex message. He gets people to believe in, and, and buy in and his insights into humanity. There's um, this one of the sermons he was about to deliver. He realized nobody had eaten. And he's, he tells his followers, feed them first because hungry people won't hear a message. How brilliant is, that? you know, so I, I, you know, I'm a writer. I, I that's all I, I, that's all I was built to be. But writers read other writers. And it just clicked to me that there are stories in, in any book. You can pick, if you can't pick up a book and come away with something, then you're just not paying attention. So, yeah, so number, number four then, Derek, is we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow that honor to our guest who has to give their reason why. So would you kindly dedicate this episode? Ah, uh, yes. Um, I, can I make it two people? You can. Ken Bowes and Michelle Simmons. Ken Bowes was the owner of Bowes Handling, a, a small shop in Atlanta. When I first started interviewing, he was, they were, they had just sold their agency to catch him. And this, this gentleman took time to look at my book make some comments and suggestions straight out of college. But more importantly, he mentored me forever. Still does if I can catch him. I like to say he saved my life because he introduced me to Norm Gray of the per Portfolio Center. Um, Ken was the person to recommend me to Paul Council at Kramer Crassel, my first job in advertising. Um, he has been a true mentor and advisor. And Michelle Simmons is my ex-wife. Don't ask me how dynamics are strange. Um, she tolerated and put up with and watched me struggle through all of the early years and early things and was always an encouragement. Um, I wouldn't have gone to the Portfolio Center. I needed permission from her. And when she saw Sean's work, she went, you're, you're as good as he is. Why aren't you going to the, when are you going to the portfolio center? And I went the next day and applied. Um, 
we, we, made, we moved from Atlanta to Milwaukee, Milwaukee to Columbus, Ohio, Columbus, Ohio to Dallas. And support, her support and encouragement was and always will be much appreciated because it was hard times being the only. I was in Milwaukee. I was, well, I mean, in Milwaukee, I was the only black copywriter in Milwaukee, and I was the only black creative in the state of Wisconsin. In Ohio, I was like two or three for the state of Ohio. Dallas, I was one of 27 or 28 of us creatives for all of Dallas. <laughs> so, you know, when you come home, you, you know, you need somebody in your corner. And that's my advice to everybody. If you don't, you can't do this alone. Advertising is a hard industry to work without a support system. Just because we give so much. So those two, Ken Bowes and Michelle Sanders. Well, this the great dedications. Um, so quite rightly, this episode is very, very proudly dedicated to Kim Bowes and Michelle Simmons. Thank you, Derek. So a final call to action. We're going to share everything um, that we've touched on. We're going to share a few things that we haven't touched on as well, actually, because there's a few articles that have come up in our research. But I would encourage everyone to um, to check out Advertising is Working Scared. Um, we will link to Brown and Browner. Um, there will be links to everything, including all of the books that, that you recommended. I need to work out how we can link to some old comic books, but uh, we'll, 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 link some, we'll link to some, <laughs> to something suitable. Uh, but how else can our listeners get more Derek Walker? I, have, I don't have the website because um, I want the website to be more... Oh, this no, way. sorry, I did know that. Yeah. We don't have the website because I can't build it right. I'm a bad client. <laughs> I'm poor. I believe an agency website should be a destination where you get an understanding and feel for the agency, not a, a digital brochure. One day we'll talk about that. So I don't, I'm trying to build it, but it's hard because I want it to be these conversations, you know, about pay a compensation, about how we work together what the creative process is. And I haven't seen the agency do that well. So there's no website, but LinkedIn and Twitter are easy for you to get in touch with me. And if through that, if somebody really needs to talk to me about some stuff, they can hit me up on there and I'll give them an email or, or my phone number. Uh, don't put it public because it's not going to happen. <laughs> Especially the email. No, I made that mistake early on blogging and I didn't know the trolls. The trolls are just amazing. Oh, don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I yeah, I hear from trolls most days. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll include the your LinkedIn and uh, Twitter profile, but encourage everyone who isn't already following you to do just that. Um, but thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. It's It's been it's been as enjoyable as I knew it would be. Uh, and it's been a, a real pleasure, Eric. Thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. Finally, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please, please do share and review the pod. Keep your questions and guest requests coming in. It's easy to find Gasp online to get in touch. You can check out CTA pod on Instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co.
Yeah, hey! 